This is Tire Information Whiskey, 2153 Zulu, wind 060 at 5. Seriously, it's Mike Juarez, this is Archer Radar Contact. Azure's weather information from Minnesota, available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast, connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hello everyone, Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. In this episode, we'll discuss winter flying, the pros, cons, and things to consider. We'll also introduce you to Maddie, our CFI, and the CFI Minute. And as always, news and events from around the region, some aviation history, and some friendly hangar talk along the way. Maddie, Trevor, and I are ready to go. So let's take off into this episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. So how are you guys doing? Great. How are you doing? Can't complain. Good. I uh, got the sundowner moved from our old hangar into our new hangar that we're affectionately calling the beach house now. And spelled correctly. There's two E's in beach house. I love it. So oddly enough, it I didn't fly today just because of the, the, the ice all over the airport was kind of ridiculous. So it kind of, it's going to tie in nicely with what we're talking about today with some of this uh, winter flying stuff. But so did a lot of, a lot of ice on the taxiways today. So I chose to just safely get the plane to its new home and get it tucked in and call it a day. So sounds like a good idea. I heard it was beautiful up there today though. If you could, if you could get up there, but I just figured it was, this is a good first step to get it into the new home. So I agree. You know, the, the first night's always the hardest. It's kind of funny when you, uh, when you bring your, when you, when you bring your kid home for the first time, I don't know if anybody out, out there has kids might be a, a first, first time parent sort of thing, but when you bring your first kid home, it's like nervous. Is it sleeping? Is it not sleeping? Is it comfortable? Is it not comfortable? Does it need a diaper change? You know, it's feel in the hanger. <laughs> as silly as that might seem to make that correlation, that's kind of, what it was like very carefully creeping it over to the new hangar. We don't want to slide off the taxiways <laughs> so, and get it all tucked in and make sure it's safe and sound. And then we'll fly it another day. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's over there. That's a good thing. So I have some more remodel stuff to do in there, but we can certainly work around the plane a little bit for that. So nice. Awesome. Let's jump right into the news. Let's, we might as well start off with what is trending all over social media as we've started this podcast, we've jumped into a bunch of different Midwest area Facebook groups. And in doing that, this seems to be the hot topic in just about every single one of them. Probably before I even say it, you already know which one it is. It's that uh, guy who, quote unquote, crashed his airplane um, and he bails out of it, essentially um, after an engine failure. As an airplane owner, that hurts. As somebody who likes old aircraft, it really hurts. It's a 1946 Taylor craft, if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, they don't make those anymore. No. 
I don't think there's much that we can say about it other than it's just another travesty. Having an old airplane like that, I mean, there's so much that you could do with an airplane, donating it, donating your time, rebuilding it. You know, it's, you're never going to get, and and anybody that's owned an airplane, uh, worked on an airplane, you're never going to get your money out of an airplane once you start investing into it. But it's a labor of love. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've, I've had a Cessna 150, a 1964 Cessna 150. I love that thing. It, it, it looked hideous, you know, but, but it's yours, but it was mine. And when I bought it, it was actually based out of Marlboro, Massachusetts. And anybody that, uh, that knows anything about East coast flying, um, it's, it's a very humid area. It's, it's West of Boston by about, about 30 miles Little airports, not there anymore. I don't think they. Uh, it was one of the oldest private-owned airports in the country, at least in the state of Massachusetts. And it was not flying a whole lot. Um, it was 1964, so it was an older airplane. It had a really rough upper uh, upper surface of the wings because the uh, the pollen from the trees adhered to it. And it took hours and hours and hours of, of cleaning that off. And it would, the, the water turned lime green. I remember that, you know, it's one of those things that it was my airplane. Never in my mind would I have ever taken that airplane and taken a parachute and went flying with it and ditched and bailed out of it. No two ways about it. I know the FAA is looking into it now and some people are saying, oh, it's fake. This is definitely CGI and stuff. But even for just the shock factor, I think it's morally a little ambiguous, especially in the pilot sector of things. Yeah. And I know that there's a lot of different opinions out there. And uh, in one regard, yeah, it's you're doing some mountain flying. Maybe it's not a terrible idea to have a parachute in the event that you can't find a suitable place to land. Um, it's hard to tell, obviously, with video editing, things like that, if he had that opportunity, if he ran any checklists, if he tried to do anything to um, either recover that engine or find a suitable place to land before he bailed out. The video makes it look like he just bails out. So um, as you said, the FAA is investigating and they don't comment on active investigations. So we won't know a whole heck of a lot more until they're a little further along in their process. And he's certainly not talking either at this point, which is probably a smart move on his part. Well, and I realized my devil's advocate of it, of saying, hey, let's see what happens. And let's, video editing can, can say a lot. Yeah, at face value, I'm not a fan of what he did. Right. Um, I have my opinions, too, about there could have been options. Show us that. If you want to share aviation and share that with other people, show us that part, too, that, you know, you look for a suitable landing spot, anything really, instead of just expletives and jumping out of the plane, which is about what we got out of that video. Show me I'm, a, I'm in 100% agreement. You know, I, I started getting into the AOPA accident um, cases, the, the Air mm, Safety Foundation. Safety Institute. Yeah. Yep. They they actually had a couple of them. One of them was actually a, a, an icing event, which we'll get into a little bit. You know, it's a nice little segue into, into a little bit later topics um, of a Cirrus. I think it was an SR-22 that, uh, that ended up crashing um, out east because it was... The, the pilot, you know, didn't follow the checklist, didn't, didn't do anything that he needed to do. He didn't even arm the, uh, the, the caps. The, the pin was still in the, in, in the, uh, in the T handle to, to deploy the chute. And that's like three things. There's like three 
items on three different checklists or one item on three different checklists to ensure that, hey, you've removed the safety pin that, that your caps is ready to go in case you have that emergency. You end up having a graveyard spiral crashing. The, the, the pilot and passenger you know, unfortunately died. But it, it illustrates the fact that um, when we start circumnavigating our own desires and, and, and not doing what we're supposed to do as pilots to remedy a situation, to you know, preserve life and property on the ground, when we start doing that, when we start circumnavigating that and, and going for these, you know, I, I think it was a, a stunt. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen anything to suggest otherwise. Um, but then again, I haven't really invested a whole lot of time to it because, it, it, like I said, it kind of hurts the soul. Once we start doing that, we're starting to look at, at it's kind of a black eye for, for those aviation enthusiasts. That's, that's just my two cents. And people looking into yeah. it as well. People who don't have any background in aviation, they're like, wow. This is what pilots are doing. This is what you're doing. Really? That because to even a child, they, a child could see that that's irresponsible at the very least. On to some better news. <laughs> what about K-State? K-State's got some big news coming down the pike. So, yeah, it looks like some exciting news for Kansas State as they're taking delivery of um, the first of these aircraft. It looks like they're getting five Cirrus SR-20s, 10 Cessna 172s, and two Beechcraft Barons. I think that's pretty cool. I, uh, I love to see, especially aircraft manufacturers in an economy like we're in right now, and such a huge demand in aviation where we're not, we're not really seeing that fulfillment in terms of pilot turnout in the Part 61 and 141 areas, that we're actually investing into this infrastructure, we're investing into this equipment to bring pilots into the new age of aviation. You know, we've we've always talked about, you know, the golden age of aviation is you know the 19 you know 40s, 1950s, 60s, where there weren't a whole lot of regulations and, and flying was uh, significantly cheaper than what it is today. But we're having this in, huge investment, and to me, it it kind of reinvigorates the shall I say, computer flying world. We have a lot of people that, that sit there and say that flying nowadays is like computer games. You have, you're sitting in a computer screen. And as somebody who's flown glass and, and steam gauges, I see the benefits to both. I like where this is going. Definitely with the incorporation with modern avionics into aircraft and with so many students that are dedicated to going to the airlines who also have these modern avionics to an even higher degree, it's actually good um, that I'm seeing that K-State is taking a sort of like melded approach instead of going all to Cirrus and having these really high tech and a high powered aircraft that may be too much for a primary student or take them longer to learn. They're actually doing a combo. So it seems like what they're doing is doing primary training in these um, 172s, which is, you know, a normal training aircraft, but also then in the higher ratings going on to the SR-20, which is definitely a more difficult, but um, higher tech aircraft. And then going to the Beechcraft Baron, which is actually a very high powered multi-engine aircraft and takes a lot of skill to fly. So I think that's really unique on K-State's part that they're, they're doing something like this. Yeah, very cool thing. Add some diversity to their fleet. Uh, I can't see a negative for that program. So good for them. So something not necessarily in our region, but we did talk about this last episode 
is the change in California at the Santa Clara County Airport um, to have lead free by January 1st. So Jim, like you said, the uh, this, this is a topic that we kind of touched on last episode, a uh, little bit more information regarding it. This is going to be this is going to be a, a big fight that I think a lot of other airports and a lot of other states and a lot of other cities are going to be keeping an eye on because this is actually going to push for lead free by January first, which means piston aircraft that are that 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 are based on hundred low lead won't be able to get the fuel there. Now this is two airports in a, what is it, Santa Clara County, um, and. Apparently, their obligations are till 2031, and they are not accepting any more government funds because they want to redevelop the land. Obviously, the airports, it, it's a its a non-renewable resource. Once that airport's gone out of the community, it's gone forever. There, there's, there's no way to bring that back. Now, the sad reality is, in 2018, the Board of Supervisors voted to stop carrying and accepting federal grants um, for airport improvements and maintenance and whatnot. Uh, it's a procedural step that the FAA has instituted that, hey, if you're gonna accept this money, you have X amount of time, they have to abide by our, our rules. If you don't accept this money, then you can start the, the proceedings to getting it out of your community. A lot of, lot of feelings, a lot of heartache about this. And frankly, a lot of people are going to think that this is going to go the way of mixed field over in Chicago. Right. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a sticky point. It's a very sad point. It looks like they're going to, you know, the, the, the uh, board of supervisors, they're going to dig their heels in and go unleaded. Well, the last time that we talked about this, it didn't click to me right away, but I've heard of talk with this airport before um, trying to close it. Um, and they've been trying to do that for years. Um, trying, again, the idea they're, they're citing noise concerns, health concerns, but realistically, um, they want it for housing development, which they say is desperately needed in that area as well. So um, not the first and likely not the last we're going to hear of the Santa Clara County airports. Nope. So a couple of events for us to share with you this time around. Uh, save the date for January 15th, 2022. It's a Saturday for the indoor air show at the SAC Museum in Ashland, Nebraska. The Millard Airport is only a short 19 miles from the museum. The event starts at 9 a.m. and it's going to last through at least 2.30 or 3 p.m. As an extra benefit, if you mentioned you flew into the Millard Airport, you save 30% on the museum admission ticket. Those of you that have wanted to land their airplanes, their land-based airplanes on a frozen lake, Iceport up in Mille Lacs, Minnesota, is scheduled for Saturday, March 5th, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m., there will be some drawings for prizes at 1 o'clock. You can go to Facebook under Create Lift and find out more information about the event. There is no fee for this event. Um, it's actually a pretty cool event. It's been around for quite a few years, and it's, it's a great way to test your skills on ice, which is one of this week's topics regarding winter flying. As the event gets closer, we'll... Uh share more information in the show and our Facebook page as well. And as we prepare for departure for our inaugural CFI Minute, we would like to introduce our resident CFI, Maddie. Welcome Everyone. aboard. It's super great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on the show. So Maddie, please tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Well, I've been flying since um, 2019. I am a senior at Liberty University. I'm 23 years old. I have completed my uh, CFI and CFII ratings. I am also multi-engine rated, and I really hope to go for my multi-engine instructor rating in March. I love to teach. I haven't done a lot of it, unfortunately, due to time constraints with school and my other job, but it is something I'm really passionate about and I love the aviation community. So I'm actually really, really excited to be here and participate in this podcast. So Maddie, what got you into aviation in the first place? Funnily enough, I knew very little about aviation when I got into it. It was kind of like a perfect storm kind of thing, actually. Uh, I, I liked looking at planes. I thought they were kind of neat. You know, my dad and I would go to the local air show every year and look at the warbirds. And my dad really enjoyed it. And I did too, just because he enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, this stuff was kind of neat, although I didn't know anything about it. You know, after a while, I joined Liberty University. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and nothing that I wanted to do would make me any money. So that was also a detriment. So unfortunately, I was kind of swimming and I didn't know exactly what to do with the rest of my life. So um, I actually spoke with a friend of my dad's. Uh, he was an old retired Delta pilot. And he sat me down for about a half hour at the last air show that we went to. And, and he said, now's the time to get into aviation. You should be a pilot. You've got a good head on your shoulders. And I'm like, you can be a pilot. People do that. I was shocked. I was at an airport. I saw planes departing all the time. I just never saw myself in those shoes, you know? So fast forward a little bit. I went to Oshkosh for the second time, actually, and that was in uh, 2018. I went to Oshkosh with my dad is kind of our annual pilgrimage and Liberty had a booth there and they had a big aviation program that I had no idea about. So I actually ended up talking to the then director of the school of aeronautics. And, uh, I ended up, you know, so I said, yeah, sure. I'll give it a try. Couldn't hurt. So in, um, I took my first introductory flights in, uh, August and September of 2018. And then in 2019, on January 16th, I walked into a flight school having no idea what I was doing. And I started with the toughest instructor they had. Definitely private pilot was one of the most trying times of my life. I didn't know what to do. I was stressing so much. I was sick, but I finished it. And I discovered that, darn, I really loved this surprisingly. I never thought in a million years I would be in a STEM career, but here I am, you know, doing that. And I discovered, you know, as a woman, I am part of the 5% of active pilots that are female, which is a terrifyingly low number. You know, we're still in the same numbers as we were in the eighties, which is just baffling to me. So, you know, through these, uh, female pilot groups and through this, I, you know, I went through my instrument rating, then my commercial single, commercial multi, and then took me a year to do CFI and CFII. But then I realized that even if the airlines aren't my goal, which they are at the moment, I really love to teach. And I hope to do this for the rest of my life for sure. Well, that's awesome. Um, sounds like an exciting adventure to get started and a lot of information very fast. And Definitely. if you can apply all that and then become a CFI and start following your dreams, that's really cool. Thanks. My goal is to be the best CFI I can be. I'm not expecting to be, you know, uh, you know, Bob Hoover or anything. I, you know, I, I really want like in all the things that I do to be as read up as well as I can to teach as well as I can to really encourage, especially the young people in the aviation community. Cause so much can go wrong so quick. And a lot of it 
has to do with the CFI that you have. I don't want to scare anybody away from aviation. So it's one of my kind of goals to get people into aviation, to foster them, especially the young people, because we're going to need pilots. And even still, this is like the best thing ever, I think. So I want to share that (laughs) aviation love with other, other people. All right. Favorite plane to fly. That I've flown. Yeah. Hmm. DA-20. I love those planes. I have, I don't have experience in a whole lot of anything really fun, but those planes just, those planes just love to fly. They do. They just, they're so willing. They're eager to fly almost. And they're, they're just really fun. Everybody I flew with hated them, but I just can't help but love them. My first airplane that I've piloted in a discovery flight was a DA-20. Yeah. How'd you like it? Loved it. Awesome. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life with the bubble canopy. Mm-hmm. That's where it's at. The fire stick, the center stick mm-hmm. versus the yoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Florida, <laughs> in the Florida heat, yeah, we call them toaster ovens. They're bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really warm. <laughs> they overheat like that. And my first solo, I had to oh, stop yeah. twice. And I over, I still overheated on the taxiway. Oh, yeah, geez. it was an event. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the opposite problem of what we're going to talk about today. Oh, yeah. We've got lots to discuss on winter flying. So the best way to kick us off, our inaugural CFI Minute. Go ahead and take it away, Maddie. This week on the CFI Minute, we'll be talking about icing. More specifically, what it is, where it happens, and what to do in case things go wrong. I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine. Late September of last year, he was flying VFR at nighttime. Supposed to be clear, weather was good, and the temperature was supposed to be above freezing. On his way back, about 15 nautical miles away from home, he ran into a rainstorm. Now, this was unexpected for everybody. Even ATC was panicking, trying to get everybody rerouted, especially there were a lot of training flights that evening. Now, my friend decided to take a flashlight and look at the wings and the struts of his aircraft and noticed that he was picking up icing. Now, this was a big problem because with rain, he couldn't go anywhere. Seeing as he was very close to home and there weren't any good alternatives, he decided to try to make a break for it. He ended up landing safely and didn't know how much ice he had accumulated until he had landed. Fortunately for my friend, this was a good ending. However, not everybody is so lucky. In fact, icing and accidents having to do with icing are very, very common in general aviation. The best way to combat icing is to know when it happens, where it happens, and what to do in case you encounter it especially when you're flying a general aviation aircraft that may or may not have de-icing or anti-icing equipment. So where exactly does icing occur? Icing mainly occurs in supercooled clouds. This basically means that the water in the clouds is cooled to a temperature that's below freezing, but it's still liquid. This poses an extreme hazard for aircraft of all types, not just general aviation aircraft. When these droplets get large, especially, they can adhere to the aircraft's surface and immediately freeze or even worse, not freeze quite immediately and roll back onto unprotected sections of the wing and freeze there. This can even happen in rain or even wet snow. So all precipitation is to be avoided if possible if you don't have anti-icing or de-icing equipment. Now, what are the types of icing that you might see? First, we'll talk about clear ice. So clear ice is pretty self-explanatory. It's going to be pretty clear, it's transparent. Um, These are the result of slowly freezing supercooled water. This usually happens more close to um, freezing point and at higher speeds. And this ice is dense and hard. Rime ice, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's opaque 
and it looks rough because it's the rapid cooling of super cold drops. It's full of air pockets, so it's actually very brittle. It appears at very low temperatures and in areas with less water and at lower speeds. You can also encounter mixed ice, which is kind of a combination of both, and it will have the characteristics of both. So let's talk a little bit about structural icing. When icing occurs, what will you see? Likely, if you fly into icing conditions, the first places you will see ice is on the outside air temperature probe and on the antenna, whichever ones you have. Some of these may be visible, some not. You also will see ice build up on the leading edges of the wings and struts if you have them. This will not only spoil lift, but it will also increase drag, which is terrible for your performance. This will put a lot of load on your engine because you will need way more power to stay in the air. Further still, your wing will stall at a different airspeed, likely a higher one. Something that not all pilots know about is tail stalls. So tail stalls occur when your horizontal stabilizer gets covered in ice and it makes the tail stall. So ice will actually collect more easily on the tail surface because it's thinner than the wing, which means that it can be closer to stalling than your wing is. So if your angle of attack is lowered, for instance, you put in flaps to make sure that your wing doesn't stall, your, you know, your regular wings don't stall, you could actually put a, a load on the horizontal stabilizer that would cause it to stall, which would cause a lot of problems. Because of this, it's actually recommended that you don't put in flaps. You go for a no-flap landing if you suspect you have icing. If you decide to fly during the winter, which I'm sure you will if you're in the Midwest, here are some things, some little tips from the FAA in Advisory Circular 91-74 Bravo that might help you. During taxi, make sure to use your brakes carefully. You don't want to skid and end up going off the taxiway or the runway. Ensure that during your pre-flight, so during your run-up, that your alternate air and that your carburetor heat both work. These are going to be very, very important. You want to make sure that your controls all have their full range of motion. While you're flying, make sure to keep an eye on your RPMs. If you see that you're starting to get a steady decrease in RPMs, there may be a couple problems happening. You may be accumulating ice, and you may also be suffering from carburetor icing as well. If this happens, make sure to turn on your carb heat and run it until the RPMs recover and the engine is smooth. If you find yourself in icing conditions, make sure to exit as soon as you can. Do a 180, climb, descend, whatever you need to do to get away from those conditions. Especially if you are not certified for flight into known icing. Even if you are, it is not smart to keep in those icing conditions if you can't help it. If you decide to use an autopilot, make sure to turn it off once in a while and hand fly the aircraft. Not only will this keep you sharp, but it also keep you monitoring these systems. Autopilots will compensate for things like icing without telling you. So it's best to make sure that you take it every once in a while to make sure that there are no adverse characteristics maybe having to do with ice. When, you come, when you're coming into land, make sure to expect something weird to happen. So not only do you have things like crosswinds and, and objects on the runway to worry about, but also make sure that if you change the configuration of the aircraft, if something wild happens, such as unexpected rolls, pitches, or anything, go back to your original configuration. This is why, again, why no flap landings are recommended, just in case something like this happens close to the ground. When you're on the ground, make sure to use aerodynamic braking as much as you can to ensure that you don't skid too much with your brakes. 
make sure to consult your craft's POH or AFM to make sure that you're following all procedures recommended by the manufacturer. And God forbid you find yourself in a desperate situation with ice accumulating on the wings and nowhere to go, please call ATC and declare an emergency. If you do not declare an emergency with ATC, you will not be able to get priority handling. This has caused many accidents and many deaths that could have been avoided. Don't hesitate, don't wait. If you think you're in danger, make sure to speak up. When flying in icing conditions, different parts of your aircraft besides just the wings and the tailplane collect ice. For instance, the pitot port and the static port can easily get iced over, the pitot port especially. Just a little bit of ice can cause this to become totally blocked. Make sure to use your pitot heat when you can. Thank you for listening to the CFI Minute. I hope this was educational to some of you, hopefully all of you. Maybe you learned something today. If you'd like to make a suggestion for a future CFI Minute, I'd love to hear what you have to say. I love to talk about things and teach about things. So let's learn together. Well, we want to thank Maddie for her CFI Minute and diving a little bit deeper into aircraft icing. Yeah, thanks, Maddie. No problem. So as we're on the topic of winter flying, let's talk about some things. Um, I think we all know the benefits of it. You've got that great aircraft performance, smooth as glass air, typically. Um, it's just some really great flying weather. Along with a lot of that flying, you do have some challenges that you have to consider. Yeah, it's a good point, Trevor. And some of those considerations need to happen before you even think about going to the airport. We all do our pre-flight things at the airport. We check our weather, things like that. But to really prepare for winter flying, you have to be in the right mindset and you have to do the right preparation uh, to do so safely. I think one of the things that has stuck with me since the very beginning of my flight training is dress to egress. If it rhymes, it sounds catchy, but it's, it's so applicable in winter flying. Um, you need to be prepared for whatever conditions you're going to run to on the ground. You might have that nice heater running inside the aircraft, um, but if you have to ditch somewhere, you could be in some real trouble if you're only wearing tennis shoes and a thin pair of cotton socks. You're going to be in trouble real fast. Even keeping things, you can have a, a kit. It may seem like it's a, a little overboard, but having a, a kit on you, a winter flying kit, that includes like if your hands get cold like me, you have those little uh, shaky heat packs. So in case you do go down and no matter what, your feet are still going to be cold in order to avoid frostbite and things to have that heat. Um, and even things like uh, water and granola bars are good too, just in case. So Tomas on Facebook asked us about our personal gear. Um, I think in that regard, what kind of stuff do you carry with you, Trevor, in, in winter flying that might be different than the summer? So I'll actually cover this in, in two areas. Uh, when I rent an airplane, I'll bring a, a little bit smaller pack because generally speaking, when I'm renting an airplane, I'm not going to go long distances. When I owned my Piper Cherokee, I had a little bit more in the back that I could use in the event that I had to do an off-airport landing or an austere location. In the Piper Cherokee, in my personal airplane, I had probably two or three days worth of MREs. I had water um, in bottles. You're keeping your supplies in an airplane, in a non-heated hangar. Obviously, that water is going to be frozen. You're going to have a few different things that you're going to be looking at in terms of how do you survive. I will have a first aid kit, some bandages. I will have a tourniquet. It's one of the big things that I'll always carry as a, uh, is from the military days is having a, 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 a combat tourniquet. Things to start fires with, things that are signaling devices. Um, and for myself, I will carry a firearm. 
because quite honestly, what's more louder than a firearm in, the, in nature? You want to draw attention to yourself. And I'll also carry a, a radio and a couple spare set of batteries. How about you, Maddie? What other equipment do you carry in the winter? Well, I carry those heat packs because I get cold instantly. I'm still cold in the aircraft, even when we're just flying around. I definitely have a pair of mittens. I don't use those when I fly, but I definitely um, have them for, you know, if I have to make an offer for landing and that gives my fingers a better chance of actually keeping their function. Food, water. I don't, I don't carry firearm yet, so I don't have that. I'm definitely still kind of assembling a little pack. Um, especially because my dad and I are looking to buy our own aircraft. You know, that's something we're definitely going to consider is having a lot of those emergency items for if we have that happen to us. Yeah. My stuff is very similar to what um, Trevor has when he owned his aircraft. Our plane does have a little survival kit in the back that has, you know, things for starting fires, uh, those space blankets that you can use, not just for a blanket, but for constructing some shelter. There's some rope in there, things like that. But for me, as far as kind of goes back to the dress egress, I'm normally wearing one more layer than I really need. Um, so once I'm in the aircraft, I'm probably going to be kind of warm. So I'll have that one extra layer that I'm probably going to be on what I'm going to need. And then I'll take that, you know, heavy coat off and put that in the back seat. So it's, it's still within arm's reach, but I'm a little bit more comfortable. Um, that, and I'm sure that many of us experience the kind of intermittence of how well some of those aircraft heaters work. I know the Piper Warrior that I've done a lot of flying with uh, when I was getting my instrument rating, you'd have one foot that's on fire and the other one that's an ice cube. So um, you have to kind of be mindful of that as well. Uh, but Goodwill socks too, I wear those as opposed to cotton. Again, if you have to egress, I don't want to be worrying about wet socks in that situation. And then sometimes in my flight bag, I'll carry, um, you know, depending on the length of the flight, um, additional, you know, socks, things like that for those just in case. So thanks for that question, Tomas. Great consideration to have as far as what gear you're going to carry with you. Really important in any type of weather, but certainly winter weather as well. So another question we got was from Alex in reference to field conditions. And this is something that doesn't just apply to the large airliners or, you know, the the professional quote unquote pilots. This really applies to all of us, even general aviation. So as aviators, professional and general aviation pilots, we should really know what FICONs are and what RCAMs and RCCs are. I can be completely honest with you and I'll be completely transparent. I had no idea what an RCC or an RCAM was before I joined the airlines. So FICONs or field conditions is something that a lot of the corporate and airline transport pilots use on a regular basis, especially in winter operations and contaminated runways. Now an RCAM is a runway condition assessment matrix. Basically, it takes a runway condition code, which is starts from a good, which is six, a dry runway, and it goes to zero or nil, which is like a wet ice or water over the runway, compacted snow, wet or dry ice over snow, and really degrades your, your performance of your airplane on that runway. So it's going to be like ice port. When you land on an ice runway, you're going to be working with that. Our cam is going to be taking your runway condition code, six being the greatest, zero being the worst. And you're going to apply uh, dry, good for five. Four is good to medium. And uh, brake deceleration or control ability is between good and medium. A three is basically your braking deceleration is noticeably reduced. 
your wheel braking effort is applied or directional control is slightly reduced on that runway. And again, it's not just for ice on the runway. It could be for water if you had a thunderstorm that, that, that crossed over the field. So that's number three. Number two would be braking deceleration or directional control is between medium and poor. You do have the potential for wet runway that hydroplaning can exist. A one is braking deceleration is significantly reduced for wheel braking efforts applied or directional control is significantly reduced. And that is quote unquote poor for the pie rep. Now your dry, good, good to medium, medium, medium to poor, poor and nil is gonna be your pie rep. If you're coming into say Flying Cloud Airport, FCM, they've got a 5,000 foot runway there. They have a lot of corporate aircraft and they have a lot of general aviation training aircraft there. So when you're coming into an airport and you hear a, and you're in a little Cessna 150 and you hear a citation say, oh, uh, braking action is four. So medium to good. Do you think that you're going to have the same experience as that citation when it's on the runway? You need to be cognizant when you get onto the ATIS, when you get reports from air traffic control, that you have the correct information for the right size of airplane. If you're in a Cessna 150 and you have a 737 that just landed and, and all that mass is able to stop, on say a two doesn't mean it's gonna be a two for you. It could be a zero or it could be a five. And really that's what it's gonna be dependent on. Something else to keep in mind with these field condition reports is they do put these out in, in notice air missions as well. As you read through that, it's gonna give you likely a, either a taxiway, an apron or a runway, followed by that FICON and it's gonna be a score broken up into thirds. And then they'll break down what that means further um, in the text afterwards. So they'll talk about the percentage of the runway that's, a, or a percentage of that third of the runway that's affected by what type of obstruction, whether it be compacted snow, ice, or something else uh, that will be indicated on there. Now you can have different FICONs or different runway condition assessments, depending on which part of the runway you're going to be landing on. So if you have a 555, your entire runway is going to be good. However, if say you're landing on a 9,000 foot runway, but your first third is going to be a two because let's face it, you have a lot of aircraft that are beginning their takeoff roll there and maybe they're compacting a lot of the, uh, lot of the ice, the snow down to, uh, to ice. You're gonna have a noticeable, you know, you're gonna have a, a medium to poor or even a poor runway condition code for that, for that portion of the runway. Trevor, this uh, talk about the runway conditions reminds me of uh, Southwest Flight uh, 1248 that went into Midway in 2005. Some of you may remember that aircraft actually landed successfully and ran off the runway um, at Midway, which isn't hard to do. However, um, it was during December, it was snowing. And unfortunately, uh, the runway reports were mixed and there were all, all kinds of reports coming in, mostly from 737s, but the reports were definitely mixed. And unfortunately at that time, the uh, computers in that calculated the landing distance didn't really account for that um, and in the right way. So unfortunately they were given incorrect information and with a combination of a lot of different factors, they ended up rolling off the runway into the streets below, which um, ended up in the fatalities of two uh, people on the ground. But uh, this is just a, an, a real world example of how uh, paying attention to how a runway, um, all those reports 
are addressed and uh, who's making those reports if, if they're um, made by the pilots who have just landed or taken off, that it's definitely something to keep in mind if you're deciding to fly on a, a day where they, you have a contaminated runway. And one rule of thumb that I usually use ever since learning about this is if I have at any part of that runway that's maybe I have a five, five and the, and the far end is maybe a three. I use the runway condition code for the runway, the portion of the runway that I'm going to use. Now this is technique only. This is something that I learned in the airlines. If you obviously are landing, if you're a general aviation airplane pilot, you're not going to land on a 5,000 foot runway and use up all 5,000 feet. You haven't seen me land. Right. So the Southwest incident out of Midway, perhaps they were given a, an RCC of four, but in reality, the braking action is, was maybe a two. And so the computer that's, that's associated with this, that, that crunches all the numbers for all the performance data says, okay, you're giving me a four. This is the performance data for four. You know, maybe we're not going to have maximum braking that's applied. And therefore that allowed the airplane to not decelerate within the, the allowed amount of space and overrun the runway and went into the, uh, went into the community. If memory so, serves, it was uh, the last bit of the runway that was poor. It wasn't, it was medium to poor. I think it was a two. A two? Uh, yeah, I believe so. And they, um, unfortunately they didn't put their thrust reversers up in time. And because those runways are so short, they're actually too short according to the FAA, but nothing could be done about it. Um, if you've ever landed at Midway on a Southwest flight, you know that they're on it immediately and they get off and with just a few feet to spare. Yep. So every foot counts every, you know, these pilots have to make sure that they are putting the aircraft down and, uh, that the braking is good enough, that the runway condition is good enough so that they can stop. And obviously, since then, things have changed quite a lot. But because of this accident, I think a lot of people were made aware of runway conditions and how those mixed runway conditions could really, really affect how you land. If you're landing on, you know, say a 3000 foot runway, you know, most people, you know, that's pretty short unless you're flying something really light. You know, if something's reported, you, you got to take real note of that. That's exactly it. So Alex, I hope this answers your question on your FICONs. So the last note that I think I would make on the before you go type of thing is obviously the, the questions about weather. Um, we all look at the weather before any flight or you should be, um, and those things need to be considered as well. Um, I guess I'll ask you two, do you have a temperature that once it gets below that, that you won't fly? So it depends. For me, I know a lot of flight schools will limit their their airport operations, their takeoffs and landings, their their pattern work at between five and ten degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I have taken off sub zero, and I've had no problems with it. The big thing with taking off at sub zero is you don't want to shock cool the engine, which, depending on who you talk to, may or may not be a real thing, but it was on a long cross country heading south to warmer weather. So I felt comfortable that, hey, I'm going to be able to take off and I'm going to be able to land at least 40 or 50 degrees warmer five hours later. So I've taken off at colder sub-zero weather. Does it mean I'm going to do pattern work? No. I think for me with the type of flying that I do, um, 
I think about if I have to egress, what temperature do I really not want to be in um, on the ground? And that temperature can change by day-to-day based just on how I feel. But my personal limit is anything below zero. Um, I've done it before with an instructor close to the airport. It's in an area that's fairly well populated. So it wouldn't really be an issue, but um, just wear and tear on the aircraft, wear and tear on us um, should something go south. Uh, To me, below zero, just for me personally, is not worth it. Right. And like you said, if you don't want to be on the ground in that temperature outside, you probably not a great idea to fly. If you're too cold to be outside and you're just miserable, you're not going to do a good pre-flight. And, you know, further than that, if you have to end up aggressing the aircraft, you're going to be in, you know, serious discomfort at the very least. So, yeah, I personally, my school says, you know, zero, no flying it once it goes below that. And I feel like that's a pretty good cutoff. Yeah, with the wear and tear on the engines, I know even if they're warm, you can still do uh, a little bit of damage to them if you operate them in really cold temperatures frequently. Well, that's a good transition, I think, into that pre-flight, Maddie, as far as different things to possibly be looking for in the colder weather, especially if you've got your aircraft outside as opposed to in a heated hangar. I can't speak a whole lot to that because <laughs> I don't have a plane that lives outside, but Trevor okay, well, can let's... talk about this because he has a plane in an unheated hangar. <laughs> well, not anymore, but... Had. Had, had. So when talking about prepping your airplane for, for a winter flight, there's a little trick that was taught to me. And, and again, what I'm talking about is, is technique and technique only. If you go to the thrift store or you go to Goodwill or something like that, go get a, a, a hairdryer. You stick it in a cowling, let it run for an hour or two before you get ready to take off. That's going to be enough to start warming that oil and uh, really start getting that, that the seals warmed up, trying to get your engine prepped for flying. In addition to that, I have also taken a second a second hairdryer, put it in the cabin of the airplane while I'm pre-flighting it. That way, if it gets too cold for me, I will go in the airplane. I'll remember where I'm at in my in my flow. I will go in the airplane. I'll put my hands under that 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 hairdryer and I will warm up the cabin. I'll try to get it as, as warm as possible so that if anything ever happens where I'm prolonged outside of the airplane or if I'm sitting on you know, the end of the, the runway waiting for traffic to come in and land. I have a good warm airplane that I can, I can really rely upon. Now, if your airplane is outside, a couple of things you might want to consider, and it's, and it's going to be more commonly found in corporate and, and, uh, and airline transport aircraft. It's going to be anti-ice and de-icing fluid. Now that's only good for on the ground. Because what happens when you when you take off? All that stuff flies off the wings and you no longer have it adhere into the airplane. So keep that in consideration. You're going to have, if you're in a general aviation airport that handles corporate jets and, and large uh, turboprops, you're going to have access to water and glycol. Basically, that's de-icing fluid. It's going to rid your, rid your wings of any ice and snow that's on board the airplane. Now, you want to make sure you clean off your airplane so you know, you know what happens when you get icing on board the airplane. We just had in the CFI minute, it degrades your, your overall performance of the airplane. You can't climb as well. It requires more power to maintain altitude because it's a trade-off, right? You're trading off your weight. Um, you're getting more weight with uh, with water. Therefore, you don't have as good of lift because weight is, you know, lift is opposing weight. You need more thrust because your drag is, 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 a, is a direct opposition. You're getting more drag. It's the same thing that's true getting everything off the airplane as much as possible, as much as you possibly can, is going to save your life. That's the BL end all. 
we want to make sure that yes, the aircraft is rid of anything um, on the wings, such as ice or frost or uh, even water. You don't want you don't want anything on your wings. Just make sure they're as clear as possible. Um, along with that, you want to make sure that all your de-icing equipment and your anti-icing, if you're lucky enough to have that, are functional. Um, now, I unfortunately only fly general aviation craft that do not ha- are not certified for flight into known icing. That stuff is kind of limited. It's limited to pedo heat, basically carb heat and windshield defrost. So unfortunately, um, it's hard to test some of those, but definitely during pre-flight to make sure that your pedo heat does work. Because if you end up getting into an icing situation, you will need that. Your speed indicator is something that you absolutely need in those situations. So definitely doing that. And, you know, once you graduate to a bigger fast more uh, higher capacity aircraft, definitely checking those systems uh, to the best of your ability to make sure that they're working and uh, operational. I think something else you'd want to take a good look at is your cabin heating system. And sometimes even before the season, it's probably not a bad idea to have someone, um, your local AMP or someone who's knowledgeable on those systems, take a look, make sure there's no cracking in your exhaust or anything like that that's going to cause you any issues. Um, Tyler on Instagram asked us some questions about uh, cabin heat and CO. Um, and that's that's a real thing that we have to worry about. You can't detect CO within the aircraft unless you have some sort of detection device in there. It's odorless, it's tasteless. Uh, so we need a little bit of help there. So um, I know that when I bounce around between different aircrafts, I've used portable CO detectors that I can move from one aircraft to the other. The club that I've been in has had those installed in all their aircraft. Since we're actually talking about that, the accident that I referred to earlier the Mooney pilot, mm-hmm. his name was Dan Bass, B-A-S-S. And the accident actually occurred February 2nd of 2017 when he turned on his autopilot and his Mooney flying from Duluth, Minnesota to Winona. And he said shortly after he took off, he noticed something was wrong. He experienced a, a strong headache, a butterfly feeling in his stomach. He felt... Um, anxious and he actually he he reports that he considered calling air traffic control ask if he could just land and this is just after 10 10 minutes from takeoff and he lost consciousness his plan his plane continued to fly on autopilot south from Duluth at 13,000 feet for an hour and a half until it ran out of gas in that one in that one tank and crashed about 45 miles from Rochester about 8 8 p.m wow. he, ended up going, he ended up going to the Mayo Clinic um, he ended up making a full recovery, but his blood, but his carbon monoxide in his blood bloodstream, the blood tests show that it was at 13.8%. Jeez. Yeah. Yikes. Most people lose consciousness due to carbon monoxide. You know, they're, they're, they're they have significant risk for neurological injuries, um, which can develop weeks or days or weeks after, after the initial poisoning that can include, you know, loss of memory, hallucinations, confusion, altered moods, Parkinson's like movements, disorders, things like that. This is definitely something that we, we really need to consider, especially when we get into the flying season, getting into an unfamiliar, unfamiliar airplane, looking at your, your uh, heater shroud, making sure that we have a, that you have a safe airplane that you're not going to get poisoned by CO2 and have detectors that are associated um, that are current, that are com- calibrated to pick up the, uh, the, that bad gas. So on my aircraft, we have one that stays in there permanently, and I do still have one that's portable that I'll bring back and forth between other aircraft uh, should I do that. And I carry a Sentry with me that has that CO detector built in, so I'll get an alert on my iPad 
as well as an audible alert on that device as well. So this touches again on how you dress in the aircraft. Um, if you've started to experience those carbon monoxide symptoms, um, yeah, the, the thing to do would be to, one, you need to know what the symptoms are so you can recognize it in the first place and then contact ATC, let them know what's going on. And you may need to ventilate that cabin, which is going to involve opening up those vents, opening up um, any type of cabin window that you may have, which is going to obviously let cold air in. So how you dress inside the aircraft is so important. So as we're getting ready to fly, um, one question that does come up is from Instagram from the bearded pilot. He had talked about preheating the aircraft. Uh, Trevor does talk a little bit about that. There are some other commercially available things that are available to, you know, put some heat venting into the aircraft calling itself. There's obviously Tannis heaters. There's blankets you could put over the aircraft. So there's a number of options to preheat that aircraft before you go. Once you do cold start it though, I think another thing that's important is to make sure that you give that aircraft proper time to warm up a little bit before you just taxi run up and then take off. Do that um, high RPM application of power to the aircraft. Uh, you don't want to do any damage to the engine by introducing that to a cold engine. This is POH dependent. Like, yeah, if you do look yeah. in your aircraft's POH, usually it'll have something having to do with a uh, desired and uh, oil temperature that the manufacturer or um, the engine manufacturer wants to see before you do any high RPM uh, operations. Usually this is about 75 degrees. You know, everybody has their opinion on it, of course, but just making sure that you have, you know, temperature. Keep in mind, it is far less expensive to burn a gallon or two of 100 low lead than to clunk your engine with yep. cold weather. So just be safe, know your POH, know your aircraft, follow that guidance to make sure you don't cause any damage that you don't intend to cause. So the next thing to consider would be as you fly in the winter, you do have some things to consider as far as off airport landings. Hopefully you're not into that situation, but should you find yourself there, your landing areas become a little bit different than in the summer. Oh, absolutely. There's a segment of our pilot population who have never seen snow before. There's also that same segment of pilot population that have never even thought about landing on an icy runway or even on an icy lake. So that could be one feature that you could use as a get out of jail free card. It's going to be big, wide open. You might have some ice houses out there, people ice fishing. But if you're in an emergency situation, you have a lot more options that are not just plowed cornfields. You have different options than you would normally have. I can share my quick little lesson learned moment. Do it. While I was doing my instrument training, we took a flight to Mankato and the weather we looked at on the ground was different from what we experienced in the air. So as we're kind of at the very base of these clouds in IMC, we noticed the outside air temperature starting to drop. So kind of a reminder as to why that's important to keep track of that as well. Uh, also that outside air temperature probe oftentimes is one of the first places you're gonna see that icing start to develop as you're looking out the windscreen. So we did start to take on a little bit of ice. We made the decision ultimately to come down out of the clouds, not be IMC anymore. We'd do the rest under the hood, uh, which we did. And then we landed successfully. There's just a real, real light layer of ice on the wings. But as far as being prepared for that situation, that point in my training, I was not. So we ultimately, to get back to our home airport, had to scrape the ice off the wings with a credit card. And with our mittens and gloves, trying to scrape off that small layer of ice that did develop so we could safely take off again. Don't fly into no icing. That's not really what I did. But. Important note for those who may have gotten their instrument rating in the summer. 
and didn't have to worry about this. If your aircraft is not certified for flight into known icing, also known as FIKI, you may not file an instrument flight plan if there is forecasted icing. Just FYI. Please keep this in mind so you keep legal and keep safe. Good point. Ooh, I like I like that last <clears throat> Keep legal, keep safe. Um, I encourage you all to actually look at the Air Safety Institute. They have a bunch of online courses that you can do. The one that um, it has to do a lot with IMC and different um, icing conditions is called WeatherWise. I highly recommend if you haven't already to go uh, look at that, go through that course and uh, put yourself in those real world decision-making situations where you're alone and you have to make sure that you get home safely. Definitely encourage you to look at that as well. Yep. Keep those skills sharp and keep learning. So obviously we can't cover all of the winter flying considerations, but we hope this is enough to at least start the conversation and be a refresher for some things to think about as you're flying this winter. All right, pop quiz time. So as we discussed in our last episode, let's see if uh, Maddie bothered to listen to it. We have a little quiz we're going to give you here. Did you recall a quiz that we gave to Trevor or have you not bothered listening to it? I did not listen to, listen to it. it. Unbelievable. I thought you were part of this team. I am. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I so, feel terrible. I was literally going to. I, to. I'm sorry. To introduce you to this. Okay. Um, we're going to ask you a few movie quotes and we're going to see if you can place which movie these quotes came from. All right. Aviation related. Um, okay. Bonus points if you can name what character said it. Okay. It's going to go terribly. I'm ready. By the way, the That's points last week. By the way, the points don't matter, and this is all made up. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First quote. Well, don't you worry, honey. If they could get a washing machine to fly, my Jimmy could land it. Ooh. I'm not sure. Apollo so 13. Like, oh, oh, I've Trevor seen Gideon. that. You haven't seen Apollo 13? No, I'm the it's worst. It's Apollo 13. Okay. <laughs> James Lovell's mother. They're already in a bit of trouble when she says that to his daughter in the movie. Oof. All right. Next quote. Where are you planning on putting the window? Gosh, I'm... I clearly have not As watched in enough window, movies. But... No, I, I... Yeah, I... Yeah, East Coast. Yeah, I haven't a single clue. Gordo Cooper, the right stuff. I want a little uh, space Another movie I this time. <laughs> I've watched it. I don't remember that reference. I'm they bring like out the capsule and there's they bring the capsule out for them to take a look at. And there's no window. There's no hatch. You have to watch it again. It's there. I promise. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one there. All right, All right, we're zero for two so far. Zero for two. We're only going to do one more because I'm not. I'm not sure that we can keep going down this road. <laughs> Experience is a cruel teacher. Gives the exam first and then the lesson. I don't know, but I really like that quote. That's a good quote. It's a great quote. I don't know. <laughs> it's from Red Tails. Declan Hall. Golly, oh, man. Three movies I haven't seen. Jeez. Should, we, should we give her a softball here just to make her just a yeah. consolation? It's going to hit me in the face. <laughs> no, it's not. All you right, want to come up right. with one on the fly, Trevor, or should I try to? I'll do it. This is a huge softball. You can't get this. We'll be in the Hudson. Oh, Sully. <laughs> <laughs> At least one movie I've seen. I felt so bad that you weren't getting one. I had to give you something. Thank you. I appreciate it. On the next episode, you can quiz the person and come Ooh. up with your own quotes, as long as it's not me that you're quizzing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. I've got a really good one too. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Save it for next time. Don't let anyone get mm-hmm. it. It's a really good one. Ooh. All right. Hang on to it. 
All should right. I, should I uh, go back to as promised last episode and give my unpopular aviation opinion? Yes. We're debating calling this unusual attitudes, but it seems a little too cliche. <laughs> All right. My unpopular aviation opinion, which as I talked to Trevor about it before we started, may not be that unpopular at all, but not a fan of, of all these nav aids that they're taking down. No, uh, I, ooh, that is, depends on who you ask, if that's unpopular. It's unpopular with me, or it's popular with me. I share the same opinion, especially especially with all this, you know, talk about 5G interfering with GPS. Yeah, and yeah. GPS being so fragile as it is. What are we going to go back to? Loran? Right. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised at this point, but geez. There's something to be said about, we, we talked last week about the iPads and there's something to be said about having that extra redundancy, something else to fall back on to figure out your position. Absolutely. Um, should your iPad or GPS or something else in your aircraft fail, that you can go back to just tuning in and navigate, figuring out where you're at and navigating from there. And sometimes it, there's plenty of cross countries I plan just by nav aids, um, mm-hmm. just because it's kind of fun to try to track them. It's yeah. something different. It's a different challenge. It's a great skill, skill to have. Absolutely. Yep. So and unfortunately I, with the, I mean, the FAA does have their uh, minimum operation network, but boy, it is minimum. <laughs> right, right. Unfortunately, it's, I don't feel like it's enough, but that's just my unpopular opinion as well. I may not, it may not be unpopular, but that's my opinion all the same. Finally, before we go, I just want to say once again, thank you all so very much for your support, for the messages that you've sent us. Uh, it lets us know that we're on the right track here. We really appreciate hearing from all of you. So if you have any feedback that you want to give us, ideas for another episode, um, or just a question you'd like us to cover, certainly hit us up on any of our social media accounts or send us an email at flyingmidwestpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, Please spread the wealth and share a page with your friends and fellow pilots and aviation enthusiasts. Are we on Instagram? We are. Neat. We're on the Insta. We're on the YouTube. We're on the Facebooks. We have a YouTube? We have a YouTubes. Oh, boy. We're we're figuring it out. Website coming soon. Awesome. Heck, yeah. Wow. This is like a real deal thing. This is We're we're doing it, guys. Wow. Amazing. And it's thanks to all of you out there. So that'll do it for this episode. Join us next time when we discuss different avenues of flight training. Part 141 versus Part 61, renting versus being part of a flight school. We'll cover it all. As well as covering how a flight simulator can fit into your training plan. So from all of us here at the Flying Midwest Podcast, a very happy and safe new year to you all. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. So long. As we hope becomes a tradition, here's your little bonus for sticking around until the end of the podcast. A gag reel of all the comedic moments of us trying to record a podcast and having a good time. Enjoy. Baby sounds. Baby sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Calliope legal. <laughs> Don't put that in. It's good advice. <laughs> Did you make noise as soon as I hit recording in progress? No. <laughs> All right, he's shushing us. Pilots will be able to fly into the SAC Museum? No, oh, no, you can't. It's got to have a helicopter. I should have read that more carefully.
just fly right into it. The FAA frowns upon flying into structures. Is scheduled for merch. 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 <laughs> All right, I got it. I got it figured out. No, I don't. We have the Minnesotas. Malaxes. No. You're doing terrific. Do it. Look, nerds, you know me. You're going to listen to me talk for 40 minutes. <laughs> More information up at the, at the Facebook uh, web, web, the face. Nah. On the book of phases, you can find everything you're looking for. So that, so now that we've slipped the Shirley bonds of earth. Don't call me Shirley. Shirley can't be serious. I am serious. But don't call me Shirley. Yeah. Call me legal.